Good morning, everybody. I want to uh, invite you guys to turn over to Exodus chapter 20. As this morning, we continue to study the Ten Commandments together. We are in the middle of a series that, uh, that has carried us forward from the beginning of this year in Exodus, which began with stories about God's work in history to redeem his people from slavery in Egypt and has now brought us to one of the most famous sections in all of the Bible, a section of law that God gave to his people Israel that should help them know how to live as his people now that they'd been set free from Egypt. A law that was given to them as a great gift, not as a new set of shackles to bind them to something that, w- that, that wasn't good for them, but as a, a way of, of lining out how to live in the freedom that he had just given them in bringing them out of Egypt. We've been trying to understand week by week how it is that God's ways set us free for new lives that are not limited in the way that our former lives were. We trust that even as Christians, we need the guidance that God's laws provide to us. And so each week, we've been, we've been trying to first understand the command, what does it mean, and then figure out how can we embrace it together? What are some practical strategies we can use for embracing this command in the lives that we're living now? We want to live in response to God's grace by trusting him enough to know what's good for us and to embrace the commands that he gives us. So that's, that's the job that we've brought each week to each one of these Ten Commandments. And this week, we're on number three, the command from God that we not take God's name in vain. And one of the things we said early on in our study of these commands is that most people group them into a group of four that are aimed at God, how we relate to him, and then a group of six that are aimed around at one another, how we're supposed to live towards one another, that, that they're often summarized, the first four and then the final six, in the two great commands that Jesus gives. In, uh, when, when asked, what is, what is the law? What are the great commands in the law? Jesus says, first, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The first four commandments help us to know what that looks like. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And the next six help us to understand what that looks like. So this third command falls in that group of four that are about our relationship towards God. But, but they also directly relate to how we speak to one another. This is a command that, that points us towards God. Yes. But that we only obey in our words towards one another. I think like last week... Uh, this, uh, this command is easily misunderstood. I can say it certainly has been misunderstood by yours truly for much of my life. So I want to make sure that we spend some moments here at the beginning clarifying what does it mean to take the, na- the Lord's name in vain and then spend most of our time on how we can embrace this command. So what does it mean to take God's name in vain and how can we embrace this command? That's what I want us to do this morning. I want to ask you now to stand with me in honor of God's word while I read from Exodus chapter 20, verse 7. Again, one of the Ten Commandments. The third of those commandments comes here in verse 7. This is the word of the Lord. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. This is God's word. You can be seated. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. What does that mean? Maybe not what you're thinking. I want to clarify what it means first by just breaking it down a little bit. So first I want to talk about what God's name is here. And then what it would be to take it in vain. So 
What is God's name? I mean, the first thing I think we need to clear out of the way is that it isn't the English word God. G-O-D is not what God has in mind here in this command. I think a little closer to the mark would be the special name that God gave to Israel here in, in Exodus. You know, early on, Moses is talking to, to God at the burning bush. He's about to go into Egypt and tell Pharaoh to let go of God's people. And Moses wants to know, okay, I, you're telling me to go and do this thing, but what am I supposed to say when I get there? I mean, these people don't know who you are. Pharaoh has no concept of you. Who should I tell them has sent me? And God reveals to him a special name, a name that he says will be his forever, that his people will always know him by and always announce to the world on his behalf. So that name, which is a four-letter word in the original, we often speak it as Yahweh or Jehovah. We don't really know what it sounded like, but those, those are two, two stabs at what it would have sounded like. That name is a little closer to the mark, I think, of what God has in mind here when he says, don't take my name in vain. But, but even this name, as it was written, as it was spoken and heard, even that name, those four letters, I don't think is the main point here. It's just a a verbal marker for who God is. His name is his reputation. It's what he's known for. It's his essence boiled down to and coded in a set of four letters. We mean something similar to this when we talk about somebody making a name for themselves. You know, of course, their specific name is part of it. You know, Zion Williamson is making a name for himself this year in March Madness. And of course, Zion is the name that he'll be known for. That, those four letters matter. But, but, but the deeper meaning here, when we say he's making a name for himself, is what we are going to associate with that name. The name is how we know who we're talking about, but the deeper meaning is what the name communicates, what characteristics get attached to it. And I think that's what God has in mind here. Yes, a four-letter word that is, that is attached to him, but mostly what's underneath it, what's communicated by it. And that kind of name, the name God has been making for himself and then spreading throughout the world, that's been a huge theme so far in Exodus. This is not the first time we've come across this kind of language for God and how he's going to be known. So I, I mentioned earlier, the, the first time that God's verbal name is given to Moses, it's in the context of what God is going to do for Israel. And he says, this is a quote from God in Exodus chapter 3, this is my name forever, this name I'm giving you, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. How? How does he want to be remembered? With this name as the code. He goes on, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. I see you. In your pain, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt. This is what gets communicated through my name. This is what will be remembered about me for all time. God's God's name is going out too later in in the plagues. So later on, this is that I just quoted you apart from when he's headed into Egypt. Moses, it's coming in. He's bringing this message to both Israel and and to Pharaoh. Later on. Because Pharaoh doesn't let go quickly or easily, God is bringing plagues upon Egypt to teach them whose people this, this people really is. And, and in chapter 9, in the middle of these plagues, God speaks directly to Pharaoh, the power who had pitched himself against God and God's power over this people. And he says to them, says to Pharaoh, for this purpose I have raised you up. This is Exodus nine sixteen. For this purpose I've raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. What does that mean to proclaim his name in all the earth? It means here to say, 
this God rules over Pharaoh, the most powerful man in that world. He's nothing compared to the power of this God. So God is in this story from the beginning all the way up to where we are now. He's been trying to make a name for himself to announce who he is to the world. Yes, to Israel, but also to anyone else who's watching them. That's the theme. So that means that God's name is not ever less than Yahweh or Jehovah, but it is way more than that. It's everything that word contains. It's his character revealed through his word about himself and through the actions that he's taking up in Israel's history. It's this name that he's showing to Israel and calling on Israel to make known through the world. I think that's what it means when, when, we, when we have this reference to his name. I hope that's clear enough. What would it be then if that's what his name means? Yes, a word, but much more what that word communicates about him. What would it mean to take his name in vain? One of my favorite Old Testament writers on Exodus puts it this way. He says, uh, on the, the kind of broad me- meaning here in this command in verse 7, he says it means that, quote, each Israelite is to avoid any use of the divine name that would detract from how God is perceived. They're to avoid any use of this name that would take away from how people see God, the truth content of people's associations with God. So anything, any use of this name that miscommunicates about who he is, that's what's being prohibited here. The point is the perception of him. How do people think about God? What do they associate with him? Here's another quote from the same scholar talking about this. As a sign of their respect for God, he writes, the people were to have greatest caution when talking about him or invoking his name. You'd be careful what you say about him. It affects what people think. They were to say nothing, he says, that might prejudice a true appreciation of his nature and character. So what it means to take God's name in vain is anything you might say about him that would miscommunicate about who he is or that would misapply his authority. Anything you say that miscommunicates about who he is or that misapplies his authority for your own purposes, that would be to take up his name, what he's known for, who he is, and use it poorly, improperly, or in vain. I think that's what it means. I hope that's clear enough because I want to spend the rest of our time this morning just talking about how to embrace it. What would it mean to actually take up this command and apply it to our lives? I think that is easier said than done. And uh, for for some reasons I want to give you. If this this understanding of what it means to take God's name in vain is is right, if what I've just laid out is right, then I hope you can see that, that obeying it, obeying the command is not as straightforward as we may have thought it was. I mean, I think typically, for me anyway, most of my upbringing, I was thinking about uh, not taking God's name in vain as avoiding the use of the word God or the word Jesus or the word Christ as an exclamation, you know, something that you say when you stub your toe or when you get frustrated or when you're surprised by something or, or whatever. And, and, and honestly, I, I do think that's a fair application of this command. I think it's better not to say God or Christ or Jesus in a way that isn't serious, in a way that's casual or or a throwaway word. But not because those are the names that this command has in view or because those words themselves have some sort of magical power as if we should be driven away from using them by some sort of superstition. I think that would be missing the point of this command. I think the reason not to just throw these words out casually like that is that 
throwing these words out casually could miscommunicate about the person behind those words. It might communicate to somebody something about God that's not true, that he could be taken casually, that he isn't a big deal, that he doesn't take our thoughts and words and feelings about him seriously when the Bible makes it clear, so clear that he does. I think the reason not to throw these words around has a lot more to do with what we communicate about God when we do that than with the specific violation of that word. So I want to set that category aside for now. The, I mean, most of my life living under this command has been about not saying those words. I want, to, I want to move past that this morning and talk on a deeper level about what it would mean to live a life that doesn't take God's name in vain. And to do that, I want to suggest three things we should pay attention to. Three areas for embracing this command not to take his name in vain. I'm going to start with the one that I think is the most direct coming out of this command, the most important thing for obeying this command. I'm going to start there, and that's with how we speak about God. And then from there, I want to talk about how we live under God, and I want to talk about how we respond to God's gospel. How we speak about God, that's a way to embrace this command. How we live under him is one way we embrace this command. And how we respond to his gospel is a way for us to embrace this command. I want to do those three things. I'm going to spend most of the time on this first one. How we speak about God is an opportunity for us to embrace this command not to take his name in vain. I think this is, like I said, is the most... Uh, it's the closest thing to what's being talked about here. It, it matters how we use our words, especially when we talk about God. So I want to take this one. How can we embrace the command not to take God's name in vain in how we speak of God? I want to take that and break it down again into two, two areas, two things that we should pay attention to. It matters, friends, how we speak about God and it matters how we speak for God. So if you're taking notes and you want to be breaking this down, I know I'm taking a lot of steps. Let me just make sure this is, this is as clear as it can be. We're going to do three ways to embrace this command not to take God's name in vain. We're on the first one now, and it's going to be most of our time. How we speak about God is an opportunity to embrace this command. And if we want to embrace this command and how we speak about God, we need to pay attention to how we speak about Him and how we speak for Him. What I mean by these categories are... That that we shouldn't ever speak about God beyond what God has said about himself. We shouldn't say anything is true about him that he hasn't told us is true about him. And we should never speak for God beyond what he has authorized us to say. We don't have the right to apply his authority to our agenda. So we want to focus on making our words reflect his words about who he is and appealing to his authority only where he's allowed us to or called us to. Now, because I think both of those categories probably aren't on the grid right now for you. I'm going to try to put them on the grid. Let me tell you how these are so important. What it would look like to, to, to embrace the command in these ways. So, in how we speak about God. And how we speak about God. It, it, remember the quote that I gave you a moment ago from that Old Testament scholar writing about what this command means. He says it means not saying anything that might skew a true appreciation of his nature and character. So to take his name in vain would be to say something about him that skews his nature or his character. The only way we get to know what God is like with any kind of confidence 
since God is not like us, is when God tells us what he's like. There is an unbridgeable gap between the kind of being God is and the kinds of beings we are. That gap doesn't get bridged in the ways that we normally bridge gaps of knowledge. You'd normally bridge a gap of knowledge by, uh, you know, by maybe, maybe drawing from your own past experience. I know this because I've been through it. Or maybe you'd come up with some sort of experiment that you could test in order to, 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 to learn something you didn't already know. When, when it comes to trying to figure out what kind of being God is, you're, you're hopeless unless he bridges that gap and tells you what he's like. That means that, that what we say about God, in, in what we say about him, we can't trust our instincts. We can't trust our intuitions. We can't trust our experiences. All those things might tell us some truth about God, but we can't trust them, not ultimately, to tell us what God is like. We just have to listen. We have to be, let what we say about him be guided and controlled by what he says about himself. I, friends, that's one of the main reasons that the Bible is so important to what we're doing here at our church. It's one of the main reasons that we put it at the center of our worship gatherings, like this one right here. It's the reason we're doing what we're doing right now. It's the reason we try to push it out as much as we can into our small groups so that our, our, and our friendships are built around what God says and how we can live in the light of it. One of the main reasons the Word of God in the Bible is so important to our life is that we just don't think we can know who He is or what it looks like to live with Him apart from what He's told us. This is also one of the reasons it's really dangerous to say things like, well, the God I believe in, the God I know in my heart is a God of fill in the blank. That's a really, really dangerous thing to say. To import from our intuitions content into what we think or, or say about him to others. It's another reason, it's, it's a reason it's really dangerous to say something like, oh, I just can't believe in a God who would fill in the blank. Something, maybe you've heard that. Maybe you've said something like that. I've certainly heard it said. Really dangerous to think like that or to talk like that, friends, because we don't get to decide for ourselves who he's like. He has his own identity, his own existence. It doesn't depend on us for anything. And he's given us his word so that we can know it. He's also called us to stick to it and not go beyond what he said about himself. So one way to embrace the command to not take his name in vain would be to make sure that anything we say about him that's communicating truth, trying, that's, that's, pro, that's proposing to communicate some sort of truth about who he is, stays tightly tied to what he has said about himself. There's another way that we can embrace this command in how we speak about God. Not just in the things we say are true about him. That's important. That's a place to start. But I want to talk now for a few minutes about what it would mean to embrace this command and how we pr propose to speak for him. And sometimes we do. And sometimes we're supposed to, actually. The, the Bible calls us to speak on God's behalf. But we've got to be really careful how we do that because this is a place where we can easily, maybe without realizing it, take God's name in vain. I want to, I want to try to give you some examples of how, what this might look like. So we're a little more educated and we're ready to, to resist them when, when we're tempted to. So when this command first gets, gets uh, plugged into Israel's life, one of the main things that the law would talk about was, was not taking oaths, swearing to God, using his credibility to try to cover up for your own lies. 
right? Condemned false oath-taking, where you would say, I swear to God this or that or the other. What you're doing is you're trying to call in your big gun, right? You're trying to up the ante on the the significance of what you're saying. Why would you do that unless you had a, a trust problem, right? Unless ultimately your word couldn't be trusted. So honestly, what you're probably doing is trying to get somebody to believe something they probably shouldn't believe. So, so the law talks about that, not using God's credibility to try to establish your own, that that's a dangerous thing to do in a way to, 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 uh, to take his name in vain. I want to focus on another use of God's authority, though. though that one's really common in the Old Testament. There's another one. There's another application of this command that comes out in the Old Testament, though, that I think we're a lot more tempted to break, to violate. This one comes out in Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 14, verses 13 and 14, this is one of the prophets who is condemning Israel for the sins that they have committed against God's law. And in chapter 14 specifically, God calls out prophets who claim to speak in his name, who would say to the people, thus says the Lord, but say to them things that God had not said. Listen to this. Listen to uh, to verses 13 and 14 of Jeremiah 14. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, the prophets say to them, say to the people, You shall not see the sword, nor shall you have famine, but I will give you assured peace in this place. And the Lord said to me, The prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I did not send them, nor did I command them or speak to them. They are prophesying to you a lying vision, worthless divination, and the deceit of their own minds. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who prophesy in my name, although I did not send them, and who say, sword and famine shall not come upon this land. By sword and famine, these prophets shall be consumed. You can see, just even from those couple of verses, what's happening there. People claiming to speak from God are telling Israel, it's not as bad as Jeremiah says. I mean, he's just, he's such a downer. He always sees the downside. He doesn't see all this good stuff that we have going on here. I mean, come on, God would not really do these things Jeremiah is warning you about. He won't bring sword, not on, not on you, not on Israel. You're fine. Go be you. These prophets claiming God's name are telling people not to worry when the true prophet of God has told them to repent or face his judgment. I think there are a lot of ways in which we can be guilty of this exact instinct that, that, that guided these prophets, speaking for God as if we bear his authority in ways he has not authorized us to speak. Let me give you a few examples, not all, not all so serious, not all so obviously uh, dangerous as what Jeremiah's prophets were guilty of, but all, gil- all I think, examples of this same instinct. I'm going to speak for God as if God has said this thing. We can, we can prophesy like this to ourselves about our own lives. Maybe this will sound familiar. Have you ever said or heard somebody say, God told me, fill in the blank? Friends, I think that kind of statement, saying God told me, is taking his name in vain. I mean, a lot of times I have heard this sort of statement come up in decision making. And God told me, you should go ahead and pull the trigger on that house. That's the one I want you to have. A way of justifying things that seemed right to us. A way of 
excusing maybe the things that we've decided to do anyway. It's a way of adding his authority to our intuitions. And friends, I do think that God leads us sometimes through our desires. That's one of the things that he uses. If you're walking in faith as a Christian, you have God's spirit in you. One of the fruits of his spirit is to create you into a person who loves what he loves, who's oriented to the world in the way that he is. And so over time, that renovation work should lead to new instincts, to new desires that that are part of how God leads us in life. So I'm not saying don't pay attention to your intuitions. I'm saying that your intuitions are not the same thing as God's word speaking to you. That you should use other people to check them. You should use common sense. You should use wisdom. But even as we pray that God will lead us, even as we pray that he'll protect us from making bad choices, even as we use all the tools we have to make sure we're following his leading and making healthy decisions, at the end of the day, friends, we just don't have a license to say God told us anything because that's not how he speaks, not with the authority of his name. And when we claim it for ourselves, we take his name in vain. Friends, we can also prophesy like this, claiming to speak for God, where he hasn't authorized us as we speak into the lives of other people. I've just talked about a way, a way we could speak to ourselves in his name. That's dangerous. It's even more dangerous, perhaps, when we, when we start to speak into other people's lives. So we, we know we're called to. I mean, part of Christian community is living life together, seeking wisdom together, fighting for, uh, for, uh, for holiness and against sin together. That involves paying attention to one another's lives and inviting others to speak into our lives. That's part of the job of a Christian in community. But we've got to be very careful how we take this job up and how we apply God's authority to it. Let me say how. We have no authorization from God to celebrate something in someone else that God has not celebrated. I think this is the, 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 the most direct takeaway from that passage in Jeremiah that I read. And here you have prophets claiming to speak for God, endorsing something God has not endorsed. In their case, in fact, they were celebrating something that was leading to the judgment of God's people. They were greasing the rails towards that judgment by celebrating something that seemed fine to them. Their instincts said yes to whatever it was Israel was doing. And on those instincts, they spoke for God. God says yes to you. Friends, we we cannot do that. It, It won't only potentially lead someone into judgment. We will face judgment for misusing God's name in that way if we celebrate something he has not celebrated in his word. We also, on the other side, take the flip side of this, we have no authorization to condemn anything in anyone else that God has not condemned. In God's word, he's given us a lot of instruction about things that are good and things that aren't good. And he's called on us to to be part of each other's lives, partly so that we can gently restore one another. Galatians 6, when someone is, is in a pattern of sin. Sometimes that'll mean trying to make a connection between something you see in somebody's life and something that, that has been uh, called out by God in Scripture. But... Ultimately, we are nobody's judge. And when somebody has made an, is making an unscripted decision based on wisdom that they have on an issue where the Bible doesn't speak clearly, 
We don't have the authority to pass judgment on them. We are not free to limit their freedom to honor God in the way that seems best to them. Should we weigh in? Absolutely. Like any good friend would do. Should we raise questions when we have them? Absolutely. If you've got them, it would be unloving not to. But we don't get to speak for God into the life of a friend that, that where God hasn't spoken. And if we do condemn what he hasn't condemned, we take his name in vain. We invoke his authority for our agenda. Let me give you one other example of how we might be guilty of this, of taking God's authority, speaking for him beyond what he has said as a way of taking his name in vain. So I've been talking more on a personal level so far. I think we can do this in our own life. We can speak about ourselves to ourselves. God told me. We can speak to somebody else about their life. We're called to, but we can't speak where God hasn't spoken. Now, this final example, I want to look more broadly what it looks like to apply God's name, his authority, to invoke his authority to, in, in an area of, of social concern, social causes that we, might, that we might embrace or condemn based on God's authority where he hasn't. It's almost a cliche now, friends, to, to talk about the terrible violence that has been justified in God's name in Christian history. It would be cliche if it weren't true and tragic when leaders of the church and leaders of the nations of Europe collaborated to send crusaders to reclaim holy land and to do that in God's name as something God commissioned them to do they took God's name in vain so did those who justified colonization for the sake of missions or wars for the sake of democracy in the 19th and early 20th century. And one of the things that I studied in, in graduate school, one of the main focuses, was the different ways that Christian pastors had justified uh, wars that America was fighting in the 19th century. Um, and for all the, all the factors that come into what makes a war just or unjust, these ministers invoked the name of God and cast these battles as battles fought for him in ways that they had no biblical warrant to do. And that's an example of them taking his name in vain. History's full of examples like this. And the main point now, friends, though, is that we are not safe from these errors. We can do this ourselves. So, yes, absolutely, God's word has implications for our society, for the things we should be for and the things we should be against. And we're called to love our neighbor. The Bible has much to teach us about what that looks like. What I'm saying here, though, is that while we do our best to apply these priorities, the priorities the Bible has given us, to social situations, we need to have the humility to recognize we're working in situations God has not scripted for us. It's complicated. Now, if, if the first Christians to whom the New Testament was written had had the same kind of power we have now in our society, and if they were living in a nation of laws like ours, and if they were facing the same social issues we're facing, then maybe God would have told them through the apostles exactly what they were supposed to do. But we don't know what he would say to us. We have to use wisdom. And that means we have to avoid wearing his name as a justification for what seems best to us. 
God just simply, let me just take an, an example from the news, not to unpack, but just so you know what I'm talking about here. So healthcare has been in the news a lot lately, right? The back and forth wrangling on this partisan issue that affects so many people's lives. The, the reality, friends, is that God just has not told us his solution for healthcare in the 21st century America. He doesn't have a political party on either side of our spectrum, and we take his name in vain anytime we say otherwise. We take his authority and deploy it on our agenda where he hasn't given us permission to. I hope these examples are helping to kind of spur your own thinking about your life and your opportunities to speak about God or to speak for God and helping you realize what's at stake when we do that and how careful we have to be. I think this is the main way to embrace this command. The main place we embrace it is in how we speak about and for God. But I don't want to stop here because I think that the, the, the trickle-down effects of this command into our lives go far broader than this. I want to talk for a minute now about ways we can embrace this command in how we live under God. We've talked about how we speak about God, but I think that taking his name in vain is something we could do in our lifestyles as well as in our words. So think about the larger context of these commands. This is This is something I want to remind you of, especially if you've been with us for the earlier sermons in this series. So Exodus on the whole, it's it's a story about how God reveals himself to the world. This is his choice for his coming out to the world beyond just what he'd been doing in the family of Abraham and Abraham's decisions. Now in Exodus, he's going public, if you will. And he's showing the whole world who he is through how he relates to, to Israel in setting them free and in setting them up to live under him as his people. That's been the main theme. We talked about this a lot in our setup of the Ten Commandments portion of the series. And we talked about it especially in Exodus chapter 19. So that's where, that's where Israel reaches the mountain where they were going to get their commands from God. And in that chapter, God gives Israel their purpose statement. In chapter 19, verses 5 and 6, he gives them their mission as a people. These commands are about them becoming what he calls, in verse 6 of chapter 19, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What we said there is that this isn't about Israel being set apart from the world in the sense of isolation. It's not about them living in some sort of castle with a nice moat full of crocodiles and sharks or what have you to keep them apart from the nations. That's not the way in which they'll be holy. Their holiness is about their Uh, their different way of life under God as their God, as his people, that's offered as an invitation to the rest of the world, lived out in the middle of them so that the rest of the world can see them. They, in other words, were supposed to represent God to those nations. That's how he's talking about them as a kingdom of priests. You know, a priest is a go-between. A priest represents a people and a God. And and Israel, in their life together, under these commands, they were living like a, a priestly nation helping the other nations of the world relate to the God of their fathers. And these laws were meant to help them tell the truth about who this God is and what it looks like to live with him. It was in embracing his ways, his definition of what's good and true and beautiful, that they would become a standing invitation to other nations to take this God on as their own. So think about all the laws we've talked about and all the laws that we aren't going to talk about that fill up the next several books of the Old Testament. All these laws are just meant to help Israel embrace this mission that God has given them. And think about this mission as a mission to bear his name, 
to witness to who he is, what he's like, to what you can expect from him if you'll take him on for your own God. Here's, here's another part of, of Moses' uh, books that speaks to this. This is Deuteronomy verse, uh, chapter 4. This is, again, a, a kind of overview of the law and what it's for. Here's what Deuteronomy 4 says. It says, keep them, these commands, and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding. In other words, it'll be good for you if you keep these commands, it'll guide you, they'll, rep, they'll, they'll, they'll serve you well. But listen to this. It'll be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we come call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? You see how he's setting it up? These these laws are meant to set you apart, but as an invitation to other nations to see what it looks like to trust God and to live in the way he calls you to. To see how wonderful it is to have a God so near there when you call him. You can have it too. These laws were meant to tell the truth about who God is through Israel's life together, not just through the words they speak, but through how they live. And that calling to represent God through lifestyle doesn't stop with Israel. Christians and their churches have the same calling to do everything they do in the name of God, representing him. So Matthew 5, Jesus, in one of his teachings, his version of what Moses did in the early parts of the Old Testament, Jesus uh, is giving the Sermon on the Mount full of a a way of life that would characterize people who come into his kingdom. And he talks in in chapter five, he says that people will see your good works. He's talking about them as salt and light, as, as good for the places where they live and work. People will see your good works and they'll glorify your father who's in heaven. They'll know that you represent God. His name will ring out. You'll make a name for him through how you live. Jesus says something real similar. In John 13, right before he dies, he's talking to his followers about what their job will be going forward. And he says, by this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Just as I have loved you, you also love one another. You represent my love to the world. And Paul in Colossians 3 says, sums it up nicely, I think, when he says, whatever you do, in word or in deed, basically in everything, in what you speak, And in how you live, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Does that sound familiar? So all of our life as Christians is meant to bear his name and to tell the truth about it. That means all of our life is also an opportunity to take his name in vain. To tell lies about him through the way we live together. So I wonder, friends, looking at us, bearing his name... What would others say is important to our God? What would they believe that our God is to us? What would they say that he loves? What would they say about how we feel towards him? Now, we got to be careful right here. I think it's just at this point that we have to be extra cautious. Because what, what I've just said is that God's reputation is affected by the lives of those who claim his name. 
And I stand by that statement. We know that's true because the Bible says it is. And we've, we've also seen it in practice. I mean, friends, we've, we as Christians in America have been taking it on the chin lately in the, in the press over pro- prominent Christians involved in scandals from sexual abuse perpetuation and cover-up to any number of other things that have made news lately. And we know that that does terrible damage to the view of the church that others are living with. And that it even convinces people that what we're doing here is all just a big sham. Knowing what's at stake. Knowing that our lives are meant to tell the truth about who God is because we bear His name. And knowing the effect that our sins can have on God's public reputation. That can lead to a kind of showy self-righteousness when we're feeling good about ourselves, looking down on other people. Or it can lead to a kind of hypocritical posturing, pretending we're better than we are. Friends, sometimes, and this, is, this has been a feature in these cover-up stories that we've seen, sometimes we can even justify hiding our sin because we don't want to hurt God's reputation. Oh, this ministry is so fruitful. What would it do to all those people who've listened to him if they knew the truth about what he was like? So we can't do that. God's kingdom won't be able to, set, to, to stand it for what we, I think, assume on the inside. And what I want you to know here at the end is that this posture, this fear that because we do bear his name, we ought to hide what we've done wrong rather than bear his name in vain is deeply misguided and also a huge missed opportunity. What I want you to know is that it's our honesty about sin, our honesty about our own inner poverty and about our radical dependence on God's grace. It's that honesty that speaks the truth about God's name more clearly than anything else we could do. So I want to I conclude here this morning by encouraging you that how we respond to God's good news, to his gospel, is a way that we embrace this command not to take his name in vain. So a little bit later in Exodus, beyond what we read, what we're, we're going to cover in our series, in Exodus chapter 34, there's a crucial moment. Moses is still having his conversation with God on the mountain. He's still receiving the commands that we're talking about here in our, in our Ten Commandments series. And there's a moment in Exodus 34 where Moses wants to meet God and God says he's coming. There's a moment in Exodus 34 where, where the Lord says, I'm coming down and descends in a cloud and stands with Moses there. Verse 5 of 34 says, to proclaim the name of the Lord. All right. So that's loaded language. We know that now because of this command. You're not supposed to take my name in vain. And here in Exodus 34, we're going to get a window into what God means by God's name. He shows up to Moses and he tells Moses what his name is. Verse 6. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, there's the name. But what does it communicate? A God merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, 
forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. There's God's name, proclaimed by God himself. This is the name meant to be learned and applied and communicated everywhere. God is a God slow to anger, full of mercy, abounding in steadfast love. But he's also a God who will by no means clear the guilty. The Old Testament doesn't fully resolve that tension for us. It lives with it, waiting and watching. But one of my favorite places to resolve this tension is another place in the New Testament where God's name is central. The same language of the name. Only now it's the name of Jesus that's lifted up. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul is, is recounting what seems like it's already become a hymn, something common in Christian worship at the time, celebrating who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. I want you to think about Exodus 34, the name of God as the backdrop for what Paul says in Philippians 2. What, we've, what God has said about his own name to Moses is that he is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in love and forgives the iniquity of those who confess their sin to him. But he also won't leave the guilty unpunished. What do we do with that? Philippians 2 points the way. It celebrates Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, Though he lived in perfect communion with his father for all of eternity, enjoying the very glory that, that was his by right as the one who owned this same name we've been talking about, did not consider that glory something to hold on to at all costs, but gave it up, willingly emptied himself and became like us. That's what Philippians 2 says. Like us, in a body just like ours, facing temptations just like ours, experiencing the whole range of experiences any one of us will ever experience. He was obedient, Paul says, a perfect representation of his father's name in a glory that has never been seen in another person before. And though he was truly guiltless, Paul says he became obedient even to the point of death on a cross He died to make the name of the Lord, in other words, a refuge for sinners who've so often taken his name in vain. And because of his obedience, Paul continues, therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above all names so that at the name of Jesus, every knee is going to bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. All tongues, all knees, everywhere, in heaven, on earth, under the earth. If there's a knee, it's going down. If there's a tongue, it is going to proclaim what? This name. The God who has not cleared the guilty, who has told the truth about sin in the cross of his own son, but who loves guilty sinners anyway. Now, if that's the name, in which we do what we do, in word or in deed, Colossians 3, then how can we bear that name truly? How can we proclaim it and not take it in vain? If we want the nations to know what they can expect from this God, if we want this name to be known, then what do we want them to know about him? Nothing more important than this. 
Psalm 32. I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I'll confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. It is honest repentance and faith in his grace that tells the truth about his character. It is an honest and straightforward offer of the peace of the gospel to anyone who will have it that takes up his authority and uses it as he means for us to. And in it all is a promise that we can be what we are before God and one another because we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And if he can forgive me, then he can forgive you too. I want to pray now that God will help us to hold up this name in our lives together. Father, thank you for revealing who you are to us. And thank you that the name which bears your holiness, which tells the truth about how you view sin, that brought down the arrogant power of Pharaoh, and threatens to bring me down to has become through your son Jesus a refuge a place of peace and healing not judgment a place to know mercy an abounding steadfast unending love that even my sin cannot scare away I pray that you would help each one of us as an individual to live in the peace that your name provides us. And I pray that in our life together and in our words about you, we would tell the truth. We pray that here in our city, your name would be known for what it is. We pray that through our members, you would take this name around the world so that those who don't know about you will come to know. And we pray that you would drive us out on this mission in freedom, in courage, and hope. Because what we represent is not based on us or our faithfulness, some sort of contest we hope to win, but based on the perfect and finished work of Jesus, who is our advocate as we are his ambassadors. We pray to you in his name for these things. Amen.